day, everyone. This is John Franklin, and you're listening to Without Your Head. of decapitation without your head. I'm Nasty Neal. I'm Trista. And he might be wondering why he's here after after the name of the name of the show gave him a chuckle. But we have uh, actor, musician, uh, children of the corn, the burbs, all kinds of cool stuff. A new movie, Queen Bee, uh, Queen Bee's Courtney Gaines. Very good to have you back. Yeah, children of the corn. That's why I'm here, partner. I know. <laughs> We'll talk about we'll talk about anything. We can talk about all the stuff you want, anything for the past or whatever. It's all good. We'll get to the, we'll get to the current stuff too. I'm not worried. All right. all right, sounds good. Well, first of all, this is thirty years in in show business for you. So, um, you know, from all those times, you know, VHS to DVDs, the fall of uh, <laughs> video stores, rise of streaming, like all those changes. How does that affect you as an actor? Yeah, I think I started even pre. Uh, free blockbuster i think when i started it was 35 millimeter and you knew your movie was going to get into a theater somehow so i liked that i liked going to the movies and seeing myself 40 feet tall it's very strange but i like seeing myself in the theater so i you know gosh that's a long span you just you just threw out to how has it changed um i think overall uh actors have more work which is good right um I think the, the flip side of that, though, is it's that much harder to get noticed. You have so much content out there. You know, who's, who's going to jump out and uh, get noticed? Uh, I think changing from 35 to digital, I see it uh, I see it on two sides. I see that on one hand, it's positive because it, 
filmmakers, it doesn't cost as much to make movies anymore. So like, you know, a lot of people can make movies. Cameras are much easier to operate. But on the other side, there's less of a reverence for the moment of when you're shooting. And that's because back in the day, film was expensive. So people were very focused when you were shooting. And when something wasn't going right, you cut right away. There was a lot of pressure about that not to burn film. Now you, something goes wrong and then everybody starts talking and you, you know, the sound guys are, are we still rolling? Because it's like it, it, it doesn't mean anything to shoot, you know, to shoot video. Um, I, I liked the older days in that regard. Plus, I just like the way uh, 35 millimeter has more depth. But uh, I'm glad that I got to uh, got to be you know be uh, there when they were still shooting 35, and I'm I'm glad I got to be part of the whole 80s teen cinema run that I was uh, that I got. Yeah, and how about the rise of uh, streaming? How how does that change uh, for uh, for the actors? Yeah, well, I, I'm looking at it from a, mainly a financial point of view, and what I don't like about that is the residuals are very much in question and how to measure that. And the reason I say that is not just for me financially, but for the next generation coming up, if in fact residuals go away in a big way, there's a lot of actors are not going to be able to survive. I don't, I, I would not have been able to have the career I've had if I didn't have residual income in the slow times, many, many times a check from Sweet Home Alabama or uh, back to the future, which play on the TV constantly have come and saved my ass, you know, and paid my bills and kept me able to do what I want to do. And I think if you eliminated that, you would, you would probably cut an actor's income in half, in my opinion. And that would, that'd be doomsday for most of us. Mm -hmm. I, I like to ask that question. I do get a similar answer depending on how long someone's been in the, in the business. So, of course. You know, more veteran actors <laughs> of course. have a different. Yeah. Time. But I, 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 like I said, I'm more worried. I, I obviously have a body of work that, that, that does get residuals and, um, you know, I, I'm okay, but I really worry for the next generation. I think, you know, again, seeing it from the point of view of a supporting actor, you know, essentially, you know, that's what we do. We support the leads as it were. And, uh, if they can't make a living, you're going to have less and less good supporting actors out there, mm -hmm. in my opinion. Um, when we started, you said, you know, I'm here for, for children of the corn. Cause it is a horror show. <laughs> well, but you I, said the thing about the head. Yeah. So, right. Well, <laughs> That does. Uh, I want to ask you a question about that whole idea. Like, has your view changed of Children of the Corn over the years? Like, um, was there ever a time like you didn't want to talk about it? And did it become like, hey, this, you know, uh, you know, I'm glad that I was part of this. Yeah, it has changed over time. I, you know, no one could have, no one, none of us could have possibly known it was going to go on to be this, this cult classic. And that, you know, John Franklin and I were going to go on to be you know, ranked in top 10 creepiest kids of all time. Malachi was going to go on to be ranked in the top 50 scariest characters of all time. You know, I mean, those are lofty numbers in, in the genre. And the genre itself was just considered B-film. Like, the critics hated it. They hated us. But history has shown that, in fact, you know, horror has gone mainstream and conventions and all these things. And that just that just added to the to the rise of, of, of the popularity of the franchise. Um, so there was definitely a time where I wanted to do something that I would be more recognized for than that. But over time and doing conventions and things, I'm thankful I'm recognized for anything. <laughs> and I've learned from the fans that it's not like I took the whole thing a little more seriously than I needed to. But I've learned from fans is that horror fans not only love horror, but they enjoy horror in a in a titillating, fun type of way. 
it's a, not everybody thinks like that. I don't honestly think like that violence doesn't do that much for me. But like my manager, Chris Rowe, um, Chris Rowe, Chris Rowe management, he has a lot of convention people, but he also now has a, a good, a, a good roster. I've been with him over 15 years. I go see a movie with him. Like I remember we went to the hatchet two premiere and every time I was a kill, he laughed like a little schoolgirl. I'd never heard that laugh out of him before. And since every time I was a kill, he'd be like, <laughs> you know, it's just like, do I know you? <laughs> so for horror fans, the stimuli, they process it differently. And so it's, it's, it's been good for me to, uh, to go through that process and learn to just not take myself so seriously. Uh, well, when you mentioned that the critics didn't like it at the time, you know, so at the time though, when it comes out, you know, it's getting paid. And then I believe Stephen King was notorious, not liking the, the film version. Uh, Correct. How does that make you feel? It's your first feature film, your young man. And- uh, it was tough. It was tough to, there was a, there was a local critic, ABC in, in Los Angeles that uh, panned the film and, and panned me badly. You know, he said, I, I read my lines like I was reading a laundry, laundry list. And in some ways he wasn't off, but it was pretty cruel. Had, you know, he'd never seen anything else I'd ever done, which I hadn't done a lot, but you know, Hey, why don't you wait to see, see this guy? And the reason he was right was because I was, I was, uh, they really emphasized me over pronunciating my words on that project. They were, they were afraid I was mumbling things. So I did have to talk more like that. And I would never, I, after I saw it, I was like, I'm never listening to anybody what they tell me how to do my stuff ever again. I'm not, I'm not going to listen to that. But I, I think it must've worked for the character because the character is, is, you know, 35 years. We're still talking about it, but uh, that was, that was a hard blow to the, uh, to me as my first film. But I always say now, you know, he isn't working anymore. I still am. And many, many people have come up to me and said they've had nightmares. I figure if I can get into people's subconsciouses, I must have done a good job. Yeah, it is. A, it's a, <laughs> I agree. And uh, when you said, like, uh, do you think it has uh, grown a popular popularity over time? Because I remember when I watched it at the time, I really liked it. And it wasn't a, a lot of other horror fans didn't like it. And same thing with some other movies like uh, Halloween uh, 3 was never a favorite. Now it seems like everyone loves it. Yeah, I don't remember what the horror fans thought about it. I just remember, you know, the sort of straight critics panning it, and I was just on to the next, you know. And I, mm-hmm. I had, like I said, I, I worked, you know, pretty much nonstop for about five, six years in the 80s. The whole idea being that, uh, you know, I'd worked in a, I studied in a professional acting class for five years, but everybody kept telling me when I turned 18, that's when it was going to happen because back then you had to be 18 to work a full day. So I didn't know if that was going to be true. I was hoping it because I seen some other actors in the class working, but that is exactly what happened. I literally, uh, you know, uh, turned 18 before the movie and then uh, did, just didn't stop working for like six years. So I was just on to the next yeah. and then on to the next. So I didn't worry too much about what horror fans were thinking, yeah. but I, well, like it I said, probably it just, be it hard was, to know back then because there was, it was just considered B movies. Horror was not a prestigious thing or like it is now. Now it's, you know, completely mainstream. Some of the biggest shows on television are, are horror driven material. So it's, it's really come a long way in those 30 years. About being 18. How was that hard to do the movie? You're 18, you know, when you're making it, but it had a lot of child actors. So did that make it difficult? We really only had the two, uh, the two kids, uh, Robbie and uh, I can't think of the actress's name. And uh, but, but yeah, there's only two kids on it. The rest, uh, some of the extras were uh, in high school. A lot of them were in high school, actually, but they, you know, they didn't have to be there all the time. So um, they, they were almost all of them were like 17, 18 themselves. So it was just it was just really being first filmed. You know, John Franklin was actually older than I was looking, yeah. looking 12. Um, but for both of us, it was our first big break. We knew that much. And uh, 
we both took it seriously. You know, uh, I needed to prove to myself and I felt like I needed to prove to Hollywood or the world that I belonged. You know, that's what was at stake with me. I was not messing around. Mm-hmm. I, I came in there to guns a blazing, you know? Um, I, I normally, when I watch a horror movie, I kind of, or, or, I'm drawn to the uh, villains, but I have to admit J- uh, John Franklin and, and children of the corn is a villain. I, I can't stand in a good way. He's like, he really does <laughs> not, I cannot support him. He's very annoying. it's definitely there definitely seems to be a divided camp of you know those who love malachi and those who love isaac i think it's split i think it's split pretty evenly but for some reason uh it people do seem to like one or the other i don't know why right i i assume he wasn't anything like that uh out of character no john's a nice guy he uh uh you know, uh, about 17 years ago, maybe a little longer, he he uh, he sort of gave acting a rest. And he taught uh, he taught high school for 17 years and predominantly Eng- English, but also like Shakespeare. So he's a you know he's a well trained actor. He did a lot of theater in Chicago before he came out to L.A. Yeah, Trish, do you have a question? You also recently released an album. Congratulations! Can you tell people uh, what to expect from it and where they could get it? Yeah, absolutely. So I have two things sort of going right now. I have uh, an in, a solo record called Acoustic Gains Volume 1, and it's very acoustic-driven, uh, mellow. Uh, the, the, the la- we've released our three singles so far. The third single was the, this last week was called Let It Ride, and that's a very vintage, bluesy-sounding song. And some good news with that, um, a, a, a movie I did during the pandemic called My Redneck Neighbors, uh, the zany comedy, I say, who do you think played the rednecks, um, picked the song up. So that that's very cool. So I already got, already got someone to, to, to put it out in a movie. So very excited about that. And like I said, that's very mellow, kind of harkens back to like the 70s when I was growing up where acoustic was a very much part of the music scene, which nowadays it's just not. So kind of bringing that back. But I also have a band called Ripple Street. And uh, we, we've put out three singles this year as well. Our third single came out about three weeks ago called Would You. And in the EPKs, you kind of have to say, what does it sound like? I don't like to particularly do that. But but if I had to say, what does it sound like? To say it's Black Sabbath-esque, I don't think it's a far reach at all. It's very edgy and, and pretty hard rock. Not metal, but hard rock. So, um, so it's nice to have these two different things going on. Uh, the record, this, the acoustic record kind of came out of COVID, having time on my hands a little bit and thinking about my own mortality. I've been talking about doing the record for a long time. So I did the research, realized you could put a little home studio together nowadays, thanks to technology, incredibly cheap compared to the old days. You don't have to go to a studio to track anymore if you don't want to. And then you can send those off and wave files to, for people to mix and master and voila, you're in business. When you just said there about thinking about your own mortality, it's kind of the vibe I got when on the on the track. Uh, there was a time, and you got lines in there like you know, "youth on your side." And um, so, as as you as we get older, um, how does that affect you as an actor? Because you know, obviously, you gain life experiences, so that will help you. But you, I, I think, you'd also lose some of your angst and some of your sense of invulnerability. So, what are the pluses and minuses? Yeah, well, let's talk about the song first. So actually, I wrote There Was a Time, uh, oh gosh, uh, 25 years ago, actually. And, and really, it, it was nostalgic, but it was because I'd just become a father, which sort of really changed everything for me in my life. There, To me, you know, there are certainly milestones in my acting career, but in my personal life, 
really there was life before I was a father and life after I was a father. To me, I can't explain it. It changed everything. It's sort of like something that had been missing that I didn't even know was missing. But once you had a, you know, once I had a child, basically everything, you know, my getting work, it was all about taking care of my kid, keeping a roof over my head, putting food on the table, you know? Um, so, so that was where that, that I was looking back at my youth from there, you know? Um, but it, 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 that, the response to that song has been really nice. And I, I've been really pleased with, uh, that was the first one we released and, uh, Feedback's been really good, and so I've been very pleased with that. So to answer the second part of your question, which is how has it affected me as an actor? Um, yeah, I think that uh, I think well, number one, I think you know people have asked like, how have you you know how have you lasted so long? Uh, uh, I think part of that has been able to be realistic with myself in terms of being able to look myself in the mirror, see what I look like now, not what I looked like when, and going okay, what is the market? for what I have now. And uh, a really good example of that is after the teen cinema run. Um, and then after I, after I had my son, I was like, I got to get back to work. I was like, okay, so you, what, you know, you're 20 something. There's no 20 something roles. No one believes you're a teenager anymore. The casting directors, they've seen you over a decade. There's work at 30. What are you going to do? And I was like, I think I can play adult mad dogs. So I grew the hair long again, combed it back to recede, put a goatee on sideburns aged myself up as much as possible. And I said, I'm going to play mad dogs, you know, guest stars on television. And really for a decade, that's what I did. And that was my bread and butter. And then I had to go through another phase. And then now I'm in another phase. And now I'm in you know, my 50 year old phase. Right. And so what do, what do, what do 50, what roles are going to be available to a 50 year old? To people who are established, they're not going to have 50 year olds in a movie that are not, they're going to be the sheriffs. They're going to be the psychiatrists. They're going to be, you know, they're going to be established, you know, store owners, you know, things like that. And so you start to get your head around that. Those are the kind of roles. What are those kind of roles can you get and what kind of roles uh, will you be able to accomplish? And, and that's exactly what the talk about some of the things that are coming out lately. That's exactly the kind of roles I've been getting lately. So, yeah. But yes, yes, I've mellowed out. It's it's hard to be as edgy as I was. You know, I was certainly the angst of teenagehood, the anger. That's what my father said after he saw Charlie on the Corn. I thought it was an acting compliment, but he was like, I had no idea you were so angry. I realized year later, years later, he met me. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's just something actually I think about personally, because when I started the show, I was in my 20s. And so ah. I just turned 45. And some of the longtime listeners, they miss the more angry person. <laughs> I found when I was younger, it was really easy to just have one point of view on things. And as you start to get into your mid-30s, for some reason, your brain starts to change. And you see it from four or five points of view. At least that's what's happened to me. And it, it actually makes it much harder to make decisions because you really – but it's but it's better ultimately because you, you right. tend to see a wider scope of things, which then leads to more tolerance, right? Exactly, yeah. And so I see all the guitars behind you. Um, and you mentioned that I didn't actually know you did the band. So it's really interesting to me that there's uh, a real contrast in styles, the acoustic stuff. And then the, the, the very rock much. Stuff. So I can't wait for you to hear the other stuff. Now that you've already listened to the, there was a time when you hear would you, you're going to be like, Whoa, those are, those are two different worlds, which is yeah. fun. No, that's very cool. So when did that become something you wanted to pursue doing the music? It was always there. I actually started taking guitar lessons at 13, which was the same time I started taking acting lessons, but I was very clear. I wanted to be a professional actor. That was 
the goal. I wasn't thinking of so much a professional career in music. I just really wanted to learn to play guitar. And then what's kept me at it was, is writing songs. That is, once I could learn to play three chords and a couple scales, songs started coming out. And I think that's just the way I, I, I work is I'm not as interested in learning somebody else's thing, right? Like, like I'll, I, I can totally appreciate Marlon Brando or James Dean, but I'm smart enough to know I'm not ever going to be them. I got to be me. And I really approach music the same way. Like I love Led Zeppelin. I love Rush, but I'm never going to be as good as those guys, you know, musician wise, I don't believe. But what I, what I can seem to do is write a song. I can seem to connect just like I connect to emotions and acting. And I feel like that's what separates me and are the men from the boys with a lot of the work I've gotten. I feel like I can connect to things musically from an emotional point of view. And I can connect those chords and things to something that I'm feeling emotionally, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. And I just really love writing and that's, what's kept me going. And I'm at the point now where, you know, that I've had a few little record deals, but it never really took me where I wanted to go. And, and now you don't really need those gatekeepers. You may not get the kind of exposure you'd want, but you don't need the gatekeepers. They can't stop you. They're Spotify, you, you know, whatever. And so I'm just at that point where it's like time to put this acoustic record out. Time, I've, I've been sitting on some of this material for 20 years and it's just time to it's time to let it out there. Let it be heard. I really liked it. Not, you know, just because you're here there, not just because you're here. I really liked it. And, and I could tell that it was uh, personal. Yes, a lot of the acoustic stuff, particularly, is very personal. And and I, I, you know, I had I had bands in LA. My first band was a band called The Gathering in like the late '80s, early '90s, and we were like real established in the coffee house scene in LA and such. Why the sort of metal scene was still going on. Um, So I've written a lot on acoustic and and co-wrote a lot as well with female vocalists and things. And I, I love what the acoustic thing gives you. But yeah, this, that's the stuff that's from there is is far more personal than you know, some of the rock stuff is too. But you can you, you know it's a little different. You may not kind of like an actor, like you don't exactly know where it's coming from. I might you might be I might be emoting something, but you might not know if it's personal or not. But when the acoustic stuff, it's pretty hard to hide. It's pretty it's pretty uh, pretty intimate, you know. Uh, when you compared it to acting, is it a similar creative outlet for you than, you know, doing music? It, it, it's more personal in that, like I was just saying, usually if I'm an actor, I'm usually doing somebody else's words. Right. So mm-hmm. I'm trying to bring their character to life. I may be using things personal, but you won't know what they are. Like an example, I'm supposed to be crying in a scene. Maybe I can't get there in the reality of the scene. So then I go think about my dog, get myself nice and sad, and then drop into the scene. You don't know what I used. You know, you don't, I mean, I, I've, you know, I have to dig out the skeletons many times for roles, but you won't know, you know, you don't know what the skeletons are. And there's something a little safe about that. In the, in the music, I, I used music a, a lot to get me through tough times in my life. Things I could not ex- quite articulate. Uh, losses, relationships, whatever, I could seem to get them down in a song and then it would allow me to grieve that in a way. The first Ripple Street record we put out a, a few years back, that whole record's a breakup record. I went through a really bad breakup and you know, for a couple of years we worked this material up and so it gave me a venue to get it out and then we finally put it down in a CD. But it was a great, great uh, bit of therapy for me. I don't know if anybody else likes what went on, but for me, <laughs> it was cathartic, you know? Yeah. Uh, Tristy, another question? Yeah. Do you have any advice for someone who might aspire to a similar career as yourself? Yes, I, I definitely do. Um, number one, uh, I, I, I always tell people that doors may open easy the first time, but if you're not prepared, they won't open easy the second time. So meaning when opportunity knocks, you best be ready. 
And how you do that is by getting yourself in a class, a good class or several good classes and take your craft seriously and get good at it. And, I, and in some ways, I was fortunate that it took me five years to break some. There were several actors in my class within a year or two years that broke. And what they made the mistake, in my opinion, was they stopped working at their craft. They thought they had arrived. I never stopped working at it. I studied. I stayed with my mentor for 10 years. Then I taught for a number of years. Then I, I basically have either taught or trained my whole career and to, to continue to try to work at it and keep my chops up. Um, and I think that that's important. Um, the, the other thing I like, I like to tell people that I think is sort of an attainable goal is, you know, casting directors, you know, are the gatekeepers to the producers and the directors who give you jobs. If you can get two or three, literally three casting directors to believe in you, you can work. And, and those are the people that are going to help you get your break. And, and we talked short of the core, and that was my first break. Linda Francis, the casting director, is who I, I give all the credit for. She'd seen me in a showcase right when showcases were starting in the early 80s. And she became a fan and she got me in another film that ended up falling apart, but she already had showed like she liked my work and she was the one who brought me in and she was the one who kept saying, this is your guy, this is your guy. So if you literally can have two or three of those that believe in you, you will get opportunities. What, what originally uh, brought you to acting? What like was... I, I got the bug at 10 years old. We, we, I was in this after school program and we and all the tough kids are in this program. And uh, this we had this really tough lady named Miss Gardner, who I kept in touch with. Uh, she saw me in theater even like five years ago. You know, she's been a, a powerful influence in my life. She got all those tough kids to do plays. She even got the toughest kid in school. We did a farce in drag, if you can believe that. And it was all because we respected her. And the first time I did a play, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, I was supposed to be a dwarf. The guy, the prince backed out. She made me do the prince. I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to have to kiss a girl 10 years old. She said, you basically like, shut up, you're doing it. And uh, when I walked out on those boards and kissed her and the crowd applauded, I was hooked, man. It was something, I can't explain it, something very familiar about walking on a stage. All the nerves went away as soon as I stepped out. And that's still pretty much what happens to me to this day. When I when I do theater, so like as soon as I, I have nerves, and then as soon as I walk out, it just kind of, I, I I goes away. It's like this familiar place to me, and I knew right then that's what I wanted to do, and and I bugged my parents incessantly to get me in a class and, and make it happen. So you uh, you just you still do theater? I haven't done any in a while, but I, I for a long time I really tried to make sure I did a show a year. And uh, I was part of a really good uh, ensemble company in Los Angeles for a number of years called Friends and Artists Theater Ensemble, uh, run by a guy named Sal Romeo. And he still has a space. Uh, he still has a theater, uh, but they don't put up as much shows. But I, I studied with him for a number of years as well. And uh, he's he's one of the best kept secrets in Hollywood, in my opinion. Um, but it's good. The difference is in theater, you have more time to prepare and then you and then you ongoingly can keep working on it while you're doing it. So it's more of a, um, you have more of a process, right? More of a, you're, 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 you're adding layers. If you get a television show, you have less than 24 hours to prepare that audition. You get it. You have less than a week to show up and do it. You don't have a lot of time to experiment. You're pretty much going with your big guns. You know, they've hired you because they know you can deliver and that's what you're expected to do. You're lucky in a scene in television as a guest star, which I've, that's what I've done a lot of. You get three takes if you're lucky. You know, if you don't fall down and don't fumble your lines, they're moving on because they're trying to shoot 44 minutes of content, 45 minutes of content in a week. It's not easy. So uh, I learned I learned how to be, you know, prepared and ready on my first and my second take because that's usually 
all you're going to get. But it's a different process for sure in that regard. Yeah. And obviously, so it's great, that's why it's great to get back to theater because it's great to get get back to process because in, in, in terms of Hollywood in Los Angeles, it's all about results. You know, you're constantly auditioning, trying to get a result. And so you, you, you start to sometimes you can burn out because you're not feeding the soul. So I've always found ways as an, as an actor to feed the soul, whether it be doing music or taking a road trip or doing theater um, other don't expect Hollywood to fulfill your fulfill your artistic needs. You know that's they're they're hiring you to do a job. You know. Mm-hmm. So I you know I assume you have the immediate response from the crowd when you're doing theater, but how about the idea that you know once it's done, you know everyone there can remember it, but no one else can ever see it again. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's the that's the interesting and immediate part of theater, right? You get you get an immediate response, and where that's the most fun is in comedy. You're doing a comedy and, and there's nothing there's nothing more fun than when, you know, you can sense a crowd, right? Like how they're how this particular crowd's in a Saturday nights are usually the best. People have gone out to eat, they've drank a little bit, they're they're you know, they don't have to work tomorrow, they're feeling really good. But when you know the show's rolling and you get to this line that you know is going to get a huge laugh, and they might even be anticipating the joke already, and you just wait. Cause they're right there with you and you know it. And you sort of wait for that last laughter to roll down from the next. And then you hit that punchline and then it is roar right back up. You know, when you, when you have that kind of facility of control, they're with you completely. That is super fun. <laughs> Would that be your preferred genre in film too? Is comedy? No, definitely not. But I, but you know, you didn't ask this question, but if you said, do I, would I enjoy, do I prefer theater or film? Yeah, yeah. Or film is what I prefer. And um, the reason I prefer it over television as well is um, you have a little more time to prepare. Usually everyone's very excited. It's it, there, you know, there is, it's a project we're all in together. Whereas in TV, they've been working on the show for months. They've been working 12 hour days or tired. They just want to find something you could do the job, you know, um, in film, everyone's kind of in the same boat of this creation. You all roll into some town somewhere like the circus and you're all in it together. Um, I love what I love about it is I prepared my, my character. Somebody else has prepared their character. The director has an idea of what, he wants or she wants to see the film overall but we haven't really rehearsed and i really love that i love the not rehearsing i I, i'm prepared i'm ready and then we do like a little rehearsal where we got to go so camera knows but i don't i don't reveal my hand like when we do rehearsals i've had many times them go that's not how you're going to do it right and i'm like no i said i don't want to know exactly what i'm going to do and i don't want whoever i'm working with to know exactly what i'm going to do so no i'm not giving it away let's roll you don't like what i'm doing we can we can adjust. But that moment that all, you know, crew has spent hours lighting, getting it prepared for this moment. And then this, this, this moment happens, this unpredictable moment happens. And then it's caught on celluloid for our now video forever. So it's like a moment, but it's a moment that goes on forever, I guess is the best way I can describe it. And that's, what's really, that's, what's really uh, fun to me. And I love not knowing what the other person's going to do or them knowing what I'm going to do. You know, I love, I love the element of the surprise of it. Uh, the reason for that does that does that affect then how they react to you or vice versa? Yeah, that- you can't if, if if and it depends on the actor too. But generally speaking, if some actor is the kind of person who wants to stay in control and predict everything, that, that, you know, to me is sort of boring. I don't want them to know what I'm going to do because I have very little element of surprise to get any kind of react real reaction out of them. You know, I want to I want I want to catch them off guard a little bit, and I want them to catch me off guard again a little bit. I want to be surprised by what you're bringing to the game. 
I see it like, a, you know, a good game of ping pong or tennis. You know, I smack the ball over there and you got to go run and go get it and smack the ball back. That's when it's at its best, you know? Interesting. Uh, Trista, you have another question. By the way, she don't really like to say, but Trista's an actor. And she said uh, similar things about uh, that it's a reaction, not uh Yeah, acting is reacting. Acting is listening. I mean, that's something I was certainly taught. Um, yeah, if you're not reacting, you know, you're, you're definitely not engaged. Um, it's, it's a bit of a juggling balls. You have your lines, you have your marks you have to hit, you have this character you've created, you have your lines, your cues you have to give, but really, yeah, reacting is, and I've done a lot of ensemble work where I'm doing a lot of listening and I can't tell you how many times, uh, uh, editors have come up to me and said, you know, thank God for you, man. Cause every time I needed to cut away cause something wasn't working, I knew I could cut away to you cause you were listening. You know, and it's true. I do. I, I listen. I'm not trying to steal a scene from anybody. I'm just doing my part, but I'm, I'm actively, you know, listening. Interesting. Uh, Tristan, do you have a question? Speaking of film, you have several films coming up, including Queen Bees. Can you talk about that? Yeah, let's go over the list. All of a sudden, all these projects have come out all at once, so to speak, are kind of coming all at once. I think because, you know, COVID sort of held things up. So the first one is Queen Bees. And uh, do you need to know about the story of the movie? I can give you the little. Sure. Sure. So Ellen Bernstein uh, goes to a retirement home for what is to be a short period of time while her house gets redecorated. It burns to the ground and she realizes she has to live here and realizes that the retirement home is like high school all over again, except the mean girls are old. (laughs) <laughs> and then she finds love with James Caan down the road. My character, I just have a cameo in it. Um, surprisingly made the trailer, which was awesome. Yeah, I saw you get kicked in the, in the nuts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, uh, but what I got the opportunity to do was work with Ellen Bernstein, Anna Margaret, Jane Curtin, and Loretta Devine. And that, to me, was a joy to watch those iconic ladies work. And the first, the first half of the scene was my characters watching them in this in this diner looking for an opportunity to steal a purse. So I really got to just spend the first half of the day watching these iconic actresses who, if you understand, I watch actors from like, I know their, their methods, right? Like Eileen Bernstein is known, you know, as a, as a, as a actor studio, New York actress, you know, to sort of watch her processed and then to watch something like a Jane Curtin with a, you know, an original Saturday Night Live or with the kind of comedy timing chops you can't teach, you know, to watch them all be different styles with all interacting together was awesome and then you know by the time it got to my turn i was ready to ready to have fun with them which we did you know it was a really fun experience yeah it looks very fun from the trailer and but it, really, really, but it, it really made the director i mean the writer producer you know he brought he wrote it because that's what happened to this grandmother when she went to a home really? and he was just shocked to find out it was like there was the cools and the nerds and the clicks and <laughs> he just wasn't expecting any of that you know yeah. I used so which is a frightening you. frightening idea yeah. the idea of having to I don't, I do not in my old, I didn't like high school all that much. I don't want to go back in my old age. <laughs> yeah. 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 I used to work at one. And then after surgery a few years ago, I had to go to one uh, for rehab. So I, everyone else was in their nineties and I was, you know, like in my uh, early forties. It was a weird would you, experience. Would you agree with that assessment that it's kind of like high school? Yeah, it is. It's really weird. Even cause I was given a, a roommate and he was 94, I think. And uh, it was weird. He would he had a little battle with another guy there. He'd get up every morning at four thirty and shave with electric shaver. With oh my god! And then in the middle of the, of the of the home, he would meet this other guy, and they're both in wheelchairs, and they would compare who had the closer shave, and like they would get mad at each other. And it was very. I was like, I don't know. This is very strange. <laughs> He's a nice guy. He's like, hey, let's go down for ice cream, which meant just to go down to the 
the communal uh, kitchen and get like these little Dixie cups of ice cream out of there. But it was a fun. It was. It's fun looking back now. I can't say it was very fun at the time. No. All right. So let's see. Number film number two, a movie called Await the Dawn, just came out on Amazon Prime. Uh, much to the surprise of all of us, including the director, it had been out in foreign, but we hadn't heard anything. And all of a sudden it's out Uh horror film. It's got uh, D Wallace is, is oh, got man. a big role in it. Vernon Wells does something in it. I do something in it. It's a fun ride. So you can check that out on Amazon prime. Um, this week, a movie called river came out. That's described as a psychological sci-fi thriller, very independent little film remarkable that it got put out in less than a year for an independent film. That's unheard of. It's only a, there's the cast is only five people. Uh, the plot is that this character river comes back to her small town after her mother mysteriously passes away. And then she starts having time lapses, like where she doesn't remember where she was. And she thinks it's because of depression and she thinks she's perhaps going insane but it's got a sci-fi element that explains that at, at some point. I play a character named Dr. Michael Glenn, and he, he sort of he fulfills three things in this movie. Like I said, it's a small cast. He's A, a very close friend of the family, almost a surrogate father. B, he owns the antique store she works at. And then C, he's also the town psychiatrist, so he starts doing therapy with her after her time lapse. He serves many functions. I uh, had a nice long COVID beard for that. And uh, it was a nice departure role for me, very earthy, very compassionate character. And I think, as we were talking about aging, I think I'm starting to age into those types of roles where in the past that probably wouldn't be what I would have gotten. So that's three. The last one is Charming the Hearts of Men. That comes out August 13th. That was a movie I did in the in, uh, Atlanta area a uh, couple years ago. I think, again, COVID just held everything up. That movie's set in the 50s, and it's about a the, loosely based on this true story of this woman. She was a debutante. Father passes away, has a big house, but has no money, takes a job at this diner. I play the owner of the diner. See, older, older owner of the diner, Mr. Spratt's Diner. And she, civil unrest is happening in this small town, and she allows a sit-in in this diner because she's the hostess that causes a huge ruckus in the town that actually – in real life made the newspapers she becomes aware of civil rights and she's because she's a debutante she's connected to the governor and she literally is the person who got the governor to put the word women's rights in the civil rights bill and that's what it's about and i love doing movies and period pieces 50s i have a nice little flat top for that and i'm glad it's seen the light of day i think it's a story worth telling yeah very cool i um, when you mentioned Vernon Wells and D. Wallace, and I assume you get to know a lot of these people from the conventions, you are right. You get to do movies with them. Uh, I assume I don't know what's that experience like. Is that fun? Or? Yeah, yeah, no. I mean, there. Yeah, D, I mean, I've worked with D. Uh, technically, I've worked with D. three times. I think the first time we were in a movie together was Secret Admirer, but I didn't have any scenes with her. But we've worked together since. D. D's a force of nature. She takes her work very seriously. She's she's pretty method in in my opinion. Um, I like but I like I like that. So and Vernon, you know, my God, Vernon's done so much work, and you know, obviously played one of the greatest iconic horror horror. I mean, uh, heavies of all time, and you know, um, you know, great veteran actor. So no, I've, and I've been in like, like taking out technically two or three films with him as well. But I, we've never, we yeah, we did a. What was that movie called? A movie called The Silent Natural about the first deaf baseball player. He was in that. 
uh, we did this one together, and I've never acted with him in a scene yet, though. And then another one called, uh, I think it's called American Bigfoot. I do a fun cameo in because they actually took some of my music as well. So I agreed to do a cameo for him. And uh, he has a pretty big, he has a pretty significant part in that. So we've been in three movies, but we've yet to, and that'll be fun because you, you know he's going to bring it. So, and you know I'm going to bring it. So, yeah. <laughs> I, I want to mention uh, Candy Corn because uh, that came out a couple yeah. years ago. And yeah. I actually had that in my top list um, of movies that year because I think it's a, I wouldn't say underrated, but I do think it should get more attention because I thought it was really well made. It's got like a 70s kind of vibe to it. Absolutely. 70s homage to the 80s, for sure. Um, you know, the thing about an independent film is it really comes down to the level of distribution you get. And 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 then what that means is when a company picks it up, what do they do to get it out there? And, you know, Epic picked it up and I'm thankful they picked it up. But I don't know that they did as much as I feel they could have in terms of, uh, well, you know, what they call P&A, Princeton Advertising. They didn't put any real skin in the game, in my opinion uh to to get the word out right and that's what it takes and it takes a you know it takes a lot of money to get the word out but even i didn't feel like they put a push on it at all so that's my two cents on that but yeah i came out on that movie originally as an actor ended up being a uh we ended up taking like over two years to put that thing together i ended up coming in as a producer at some point because i saw the potential of the movie and helped raise some funding that helped get more sh more shooting done that then helped get the rest of the money and then when we shot in la that's when I really put my hands on her as a producer and said, you know, now you're in my town. I'm going to show you how we, how we run things out here. And, you know, could get good deals on trailers and things like that, you know, with the budget we had. And uh, yeah, I, I, it, was, it was, it was, I think it came out good. And I, I enjoy Poncho. Poncho is the one who got the job. I've had him on the show many times. Yeah. yeah. Poncho played Dr. Death. I think it's a great vehicle for him. I think they could go on and make 10 more. Um, so we'll see what happens. I know that the director didn't want, to do another one as his second film. He wants to do something else first and then come back to it. Um, so, which might be a long-term smart move. Uh, but I would love to see Poncho do that role again. I thought he was great. And, uh, you know, it was a good role for me again, as, as I'm getting older, got to play the sheriff of the small town. And, uh, like I said, those are the types of roles that, that are available now. Yeah. I had one, um, when it came out, Josh hasty, the director was on the show and he mentioned ah. you and said the original producers, we're not really supportive. And then uh, he really mentioned that you were a big help on the film. Yeah. Um, I actually vouched for, I don't want to give a name, but I vouched for a producer that I'd worked with previously in some other horror films. We've heard about it. And uh, yeah, he, he kind of went MIA on us on the first, the first round of shooting. And, and it, it caused a big riff with he and I actually, because it was, it was affecting the shoot. We were in Ohio. We had to shoot twice in Ohio in the fall. That's one of the reasons it took so long. We first time we shot and then we missed the fall. We had to come back. And it was like deja vu a year later, coming back to the same place, shooting again. But uh, yeah, so that when that when he fell out, I felt being that I had recommended him, I felt a little obligated to to keep the movie alive. And luckily, I was able to you know, like I said, raise something just to help keep it going to give us enough footage to show other investors, like hey, you know, uh, we we you know this has a great look to it, and there's some good performances in it, and you know this is a wor movie worth making. Um, and it, yeah, it's, it was, it was, it was, it, it, it's a cool project, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I hope people uh, check it out because I thought it was great. Thank you. Yeah. Um, another movie of yours that is actually, it might be my favorite movie of yours is mm. the Burbs. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I love the, the amazing cast in the movie, obviously yes. Tom Hanks, but there's everyone in the movie's great. 
And uh, what was it like to work with some of the veteran actors in that? Because, you know, you were a younger guy at the time. Yes. Uh, well, the biggest challenge was this character who was supposed to be a strange stranger from a strange land. Everywhere I looked, I saw people that were part of my childhood. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like people that I admired. And, and uh, certainly, you know, my, 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 my favorite of all of them was Bruce Darn. I just, you know, you know, kind of could see myself in his, you know, I could see a career like his to some degree or whatever. And, uh, he was really, really super kind to me and took me under his wing and really acknowledged the kind of work I was doing and gave me great advice. And I, I was very, very uh, grateful and last year, or the end of 2019, I did a movie called Hellblazers that is yet to come out, but it's got a really good horror cast to it as well. But it was so great to get to see Bruce again and thank him all those years later and tell him how much I had appreciated him, him taking me under his wing at that time. Oh, that's very cool. And uh, you mentioned like seeing yourself on the 40 foot screen. Yeah. Um, it's not a, it's not the most flattering look in uh, in in the verb. So. Uh, no. I know it's kind of a silly questions acting and everything, but uh, was there any apprehension to, to, you know? No, there wasn't because I just dive all the way in. I mean, I, there, I have a, an odd willingness. I say odd because it sort of surprises me too. But I'm at my best when I'm willing to look bad. And that means physically or otherwise. And I often go that way with stuff. I often lean into it, right? And I don't know why exactly. I know it's not necessarily going to flatter me, but uh, – it just a lot of times that's where the character needs to go, in my opinion. And, and I have to be willing to go or where I'm uncomfortable going. But I give all the credit to that look to Joe Dante. What, all I did was take a general meeting with him on that. I was working a lot already. We had a little con conversation of what I saw him like, and I got the job. And then from that moment on, he was sending me to things to do, like, go get these teeth made. They're going to be horrible. <laughs> I want to see them on, come back to me. Then he'd laugh, you know, go get your haircut. He'd tell him, mess his haircut, but I don't want it to be even. Then he'd <laughs> I have to show him the haircut and he'd laugh. And then, you know, then we put, he picked the swath of, for the leader hose. I had to come show him the outfit. This is like a big budget production where you had like well, time to put stuff together. And I put that on and then he started laughing and he's like, you're never going to work again. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not that I thought that would be the case, but I got where he was coming from. And then the makeup artist, who goes all the way back to apprenticing on Eddie Munster, just did a fabulous, I learned more from him about makeup than anybody because what he did was the exact opposite of making you look good. Like, right, like, so I have like a little bit of beady eyes, right? So if I lighten up in here, it brings my eyes out, right? So he would do the opposite, right? So it'd make you even look worse. So he would, the way he did shading contouring, I learned, I learned what contouring was by him making, using them all to the disadvantage as opposed to the advantage. And then the last thing he did that was really interesting that nobody else has ever done, and I've used it for, for auditions and things, is he took pastels. He took a green pastel, used some sandpaper, and then brushed it on to put, like, green veins under, underneath the oh. makeup. And it gave this, like, translucent little very subtle cool thing that no one's – but that's because he was old school, man. He went all the way back to black and white. And he would not let them get me out of that trailer. They'd try to get me, and he would just, like, tell them, go away. He's not ready yet. He just really took care of me to have me look my worst. <laughs> right. <laughs> and some pretty sweet facial hair in the movie as well. Yeah, well, he used uh, what they call spirit gum, right? The, the, the stuff for sticking it, and he would, like, comb it with a comb so it would just stand <laughs> straight out. <laughs> I love it. Uh, Tristy, you have another question? I imagine there are some similarities between the independent film business and the independent music business. Can you extrapolate on that a bit? 
Um, I can a little. I'm not as I'm not as savvy about the music businesses, which is probably why I don't have a record deal. Um, but uh, in the, it, what you if if you're going to make a record on your own, like somebody goes to make a movie on their own, then you it, which is hard enough to do, and the financial cost it's a little less to make a, a, a record perhaps. But then you have that daunting task of getting it out, and so that there's two ways to go with that: you put it out independently, independently or you get a distributor and, and clearly the better distributor you can get, the better chance you have. It's really, it really is the make or break of a project. And in my case of music, I'm just doing self distribution right now, but as a producer in movies, I've had highs and I've had lows. Like I said, Children of the corn came out on Epic. Did I think they did all right. Um, I had a movie called Benny bliss and the disciples of greatness that I think is a great little, little film. I, uh, wrote four songs in we do I sing in it I play music we did a literally a live concert at the end like a 30 minute set most out of net I've ever been as an actor that distribution didn't do a great job getting the word out on that it's just kind of under the radar but I had a movie called dorm days I helped produce that MGM picked up just straight to video but you're still talking a five you know top five distributor right and that thing actually you know made money and the producers and director went on to make three more because they could easily raise money at that point because they had, they could say to people, MGM's going to put this out. So that's, it's harder to raise money. It's harder to make it. The toughest is getting good distribution. So you get the, the movies coming out that you mentioned, uh, you have the music, where can people go to, uh, to see what you're up to and, and find your music? Yeah. Best places. Uh, well, if you're going to find music, you can find it on Spotify, Amazon, Deezer. You can find music videos up on YouTube um as far as me uh facebook it's just my name same thing with my instagram i always tell people there's i know there's probably more than one courtney Gaines up on facebook you'll be able to tell which one it is because i have all the current stuff they wouldn't have so you'll know it's me all right very good well uh this was great thank you yeah, very good time. nice meeting you guys yeah. you too take care Bye. From ancient terrors to the search for modern-day conspiracies, the tomb of Nick Cage is the new sound in horror rock. Uncover the mystery of old-world horror for the new world order on iTunes, Amazon, and more. Ripley, we should have listened. The tomb of Nick Cage. Find out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The Tomb of Nick Cage. They're coming.